coming up, director, writer, author, actor, Peter Bogdanovich joins Ileana in just a minute. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk, we talk movies. And now, it's the I Blame Dennis Hopper podcast, starring Ileana Douglas. Eavesdrop with Ileana as she interviews Hollywood's most prominent players about filmmaking, acting, and what really happens on the set of your favorite flicks and TV shows. Well, hello, I'm Ileana Douglas, and uh, welcome to the podcast. My co-host, Tamara Berg, is here, and it's a great honor to be sitting next to uh, Mr. Peter Bogdanovich, who uh, we've had the privilege, we've worked together, you've directed me, and uh, and now I'm going to get to interview. It's surreal. Well, it's wonderful. You're, you're so interesting to talk to. Well, thank you. I, swear, I always think of you as um, almost inventing the film interview uh, technique here in America. Uh, well, I did a lot of interviews, that's for sure. Uh, we, I, I don't know if I invented it, but... Well, I'm going to say you invented Pioneer. it. Pioneer. I'll, I'll take the credit. Yes. There you go. <laughs> um, Tamara, um, I have a bunch of things I want to ask you, but Tamara, we always start the show off by we talk about little things that we're thinking about, movie secrets, etc. And one of the things we were going to talk about is uh, lucky charms on the set and superstitions. Rituals, you, things like that. Yes. Yeah. Do you have anything? I have a lot of them. Do you, do you have any kind of rituals that you do when you're on set? Not really. You're not afraid of the color purple. <laughs> no, I don't have any. You mean the way that the uh, actors when when you when you do Macbeth, they don't say the name of the play. Right. Yeah. Right. I have the so, Scottish play. Yes. Right. I have so you know you can't put a hat on a bed and yeah. That's well. That's a, a lot of people think that things like that's that. That's not just show business. I don't have any particular. Superstitions like that. I can't think of any. I remembered when we worked together on the film, you would always say something before each take. Which, which film I, was this, first of all? Uh, this was, and the, which was originally called Squirrels to the Nuts. Yeah, yes. and they, they, we got the cha- title got changed to so She's Funny That Way. Yeah. She's Funny That Way, which is out with Jennifer Aniston. Very funny comedy. And uh, I, I, I used to always remember, I thought it was very touching before every take, you'd say, and remember, this never happened. Oh, yeah, I did say that. Oh. <laughs> well, it's important to... It never happened before. Right. Yeah. Keeping it's it fresh, essentially, Keep, right? Keeping it fresh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I thought that was such a great thing in life. I, I wrote it down. I was like... I said, I'm going to remember that because it's sort of such a key of not thinking about the past and not thinking about the future. Yeah. Um, puts you right in the moment. What about when you're on set and... Uh, I like when I'm acting to have a great... I hate... There's a new thing going on lately where everything seems to be completely dead quiet before you act. And all the early movies that I was a part of, uh, certainly Martin Scorsese, et cetera, he'd rabble-rouse everybody. So there'd be a kind of a heightened thing. He'd quietly tell the camera person to put the camera on, and you'd be rolling before you even knew it. And mm. now I feel like there's such an emphasis on the technical but do you, is there anything on the set? Like, do you like to create a certain vibe on set? Well, I don't know what I do. I, I'm not. I'm not that conscious of it. I like to kind of get everybody in a good mood. Mm-hmm. So I, I come on sometimes and I say, I'm going to direct the entire day like Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> and I, and I'd like you guys to go over there and be quiet. And when I come on, I say, I'm going to do it like Cary Grant today. Oh. And I do that for a while. Wow. Well, it works. All right, everybody. Let's go. Let's get to work. 
It definitely works. Now, you have yes. rituals, I know, because you talk about them in the book a little bit. I There's so many that I have. I mean, which, you so know, I have the, lucky numbers. I, I'm into numerology. Right. I know um, uh, if I'm working on a movie, if I'm producing a movie, directing something, I know, John Frankenheimer told me never start a movie on a Monday, always start it on a Tuesday. Well, that's wise. Because he said, it'll you have a very short week and people will be in a good mood and it'll seem like you accomplished that's kind of, a lot. That's so, good life advice, too, I think. Just, just start just, it on a Tuesday. Well, Tuesday. Monday is the day of war, you know. Uh-huh. War or growth. Oh, okay. Monday is the day of enchantment, so you don't want to work on the day of enchantment. No, I hate Mondays. No. Everybody right. does, that's why. Immemorially, yeah. in, in the power of the day is enchantment. I see. But Tuesday is a good day. I'm trying to think what other ones that I... Well, I know you, you talk about in the book, about, and we've talked about this on music. the show before, setting up your playlist so that you can have music. There's another thing I do, Peter. If, I, if I'm working on a movie, I sort of have a certain playlist of songs that I'm, that I'm really into listening For to. For that movie. Yeah. Well, that's or that character. If I'm doing... Yeah. I talked in uh, quite a bit in the movie uh, Cape Fear. I had to play a very dark character, and I listened to Etta James. And I don't know why that... Uh, kind of a boozy, it, it dark... Uh, vibe sort of help me out, or mm. you know. So I, I I do things like that, just listening. That's good. That's good. That, that makes sense. Yeah, just for you know, to, for a for a variety. So that's that. And I like to talk to people on the set too. I'm very. As soon as somebody says to me, "Don't talk to Eddie Murphy," well, it's like, well, that's the first thing I'm going to do. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, like I can't. Don't Eddie doesn't look at. Don't talk to him i'm like well i have to do a scene with him it's gonna be really hard of course you should talk to him yeah but they always say that you know oh my goodness the amount of times i've been told about various don't "Don't look at him he's not gonna look at you i remember i had an audition once for, for woody allen and i remember they ushered me in and they said and remember don't talk to him don't look at him don't ask him any questions you know it was like I'm great. I'm terrified now. You know, and they ushered me in. It was like his dark, I think it was on Park Avenue, kind of an editing suite or whatever. And I did my audition. And then before I walked out, I was like, I'll be damned if I'm not going to say something. So I turned around and I said something about Bob Hope, you know. And yeah, he, he talked, you know, so we talked a little He's bit. He's very but, shy. Yeah. But that very whole. shy. But you would never say that to someone, don't no, you? No, no, no. Look at me, don't talk to me. So I'm gonna. We always start the show with a very uh, kind of a fun question, which is, I mean, you've seen one thousand movies, but do you well, remember? I've seen more than that. Ten thousand. You think you've no, seen? No, not ten thousand. Maybe six or seven thousand. I almost have a feeling that you have a scroll of, ri- of every, <laughs> every... I did keep a track of every film I saw from 1952 when I was 12 and a half oh, till 1970 God. when I was 30 and a half. And is, is that something that you card, published? Card or? file. Wow, on a card file. Oh, wow. Yeah, with you know, each, each film on a four by six card. I would I would love to I'm going to publish see that some published. of it. I'm going to see some. Wes Anderson wants me to publish the whole thing uh, with the cards. With the cards, yeah, so absolutely. You, would you I write agree. Notes on the cards and and, and the type. Uh-huh. I type the director and a couple of other things. When you were twelve, you were. I started doing it when I was twelve. Wow. Twelve you, and a half. Did you always? I mean. You look like a you know when you say like you look like a director you look like a director you were born to be a director you know did was that something when you were twelve no I, I thought I'd be an actor 
I see. I started out as an as an actor uh, when I was quite mm-hmm. young. I even was working professionally by the time I was fifteen. Mm-hmm. I thought I would direct, and then it sort of. Sw- I thought I would act, and then it sort of switched. Mm-hmm. I didn't like auditioning. No, no one does. I thought it was not a good way to tell if anybody. Was, I I've often cast people without reading them. I just talk to them. They have an instinct about them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It, it, I, I've never... So didn't. I didn't like auditioning. So then I, at one point I was studying with Stella Adler in New York. Mm-hmm. And I directed five actors in the scene. I just, we, were, we were sitting around in a diner and I said, why don't I direct you guys in the scene? I don't know why I said it. Uh-huh. And we did a scene from The Big Knife and Stella said it was... Five guys got up, you know, usually it's two people. Yes. Or one person. Five guys got up and did the scene. And she said, bravo, darlings, but you've been directed. Who directed you? <laughs> And they all pointed at me. I was standing in the back of the studio, Peter. And she turned to me. She said, bravo, darling, brilliant. And I thought, oh. well, I guess I'll direct. I'm a director. I'm wow. A director. So I did that play mm-hmm. off Broadway. I was Big tw- knife. I was 20. Clifford Odets. Clifford Odets. Oh, yeah. the wonderful Clifford Odets. Oh, he was great, great. My I, goodness. I got to know him a little bit. You did? Yeah. In, uh, in what capacity? As a well, writer? After I After I directed the play. Oh, my God. See, this is what's incredible to me is that you had uh, an actual... Rela- you know, you're not like me who's writing about people I admire. You, you've met these people. You've had relationships with them. I was so lucky that so many of the great masters of film were alive still mm-hmm. and willing to talk to me, and some of them were still working. Yes. Like Hawks, Howard Hawks, and uh, Ford a little bit. He was working. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I was on the set with him for a couple of pictures. Is it true that in the early '60s that you uh, actually started the first? Re- you did the first retrospective of Wells. Yeah, at the Museum of Modern <clears throat> Art in New York, there had never been a retrospective of Wells, nor Hawks, nor Hitchcock. And I did all three of them, one after the other, in 61, 62, 63. And, w- and what was it th- that you thought that they, they need? What, you know, you took that, you took that mantle up. I say, I get, that's where I go back to the beginning when I say you sort of invented this form. Well, what happened was it was odd. I wrote a program note about Orson's Othello mm-hmm. for a movie theater called The New Yorker. It was a kind of a hip theater. I remember it. Remember that? Yeah. And, uh, and the, the, the policy was to show classic American films, which mm-hmm. wasn't done much in those days. And I wrote program notes occasionally uh, to make a few bucks. Mm-hmm. And I wrote a pr- program note for Othello in which I said it was the best Shakespeare film ever made, which was not the common wisdom at that point at mm-hmm. all. In fact, it was uh, the picture was not highly thought of at all. Mm-hmm. And I get a call from Richard Griffith, who was the curator at the Museum of Modern Art. He says, we're going to do a, the first retrospective of Orson Welles in this country. We'd like you to curate it and write the accompanying monograph. I said, why me? Uh, how come you're not doing it, Dick? You usually do that. And he said, well, he said, I don't really like Orson Welles. He said, <laughs> but, but we have many of our members do and uh, colleagues in Europe do, and we think it's time for the museum to do a retrospective. We think we want somebody who's partial. And mm-hmm. we read your program note on Othello, and you're obviously a partial to him. So, so I did, 50 bucks. That's like the whole job, and then I felt I, I shortly after that realized that Howard Hawks was one of my favorite directors, and I didn't realize it because I loved when I was ten. Two of my favorite films were uh, Red River mm-hmm. and um, I Was a Male War Bride, both ah. directed by Howard Hawks. I didn't know that, mm-hmm. so I finally figured out who Howard Hawks was, and then I wanted to see everything he'd made. So. He had a film coming out. Paramount was releasing Hatari, 
with uh, John Wayne. And I called the f- guy at the publicity department there that I knew, and I said, if I can get the Museum of, to, Museum of Modern Art to do a retrospective on Hawks when you open the Tatari, will you guys at Paramount pay for it? And he said, we'll get back to you. And he said, yes. Yeah. So I got paid about, I think, $200 a week. Wow. My first money from a movie studio. And so they're, they're having prints at this time. Oh, sure. So it's not as difficult as it is today. Because today, of course, the issue is always... 35-millimeter print, yeah. Can't get a print of anything. Well, the DVDs are pretty good, you know. Yeah, they are. They are. There is something about the real change, though, that yeah. is very sexy mm-hmm. that I like. Well, anyway, so that was that. And then we, I did the same thing the following year with Universal and Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. And the main reason was not just to make some bread on it, but really to see the films. Right. I wanted to see all their films. Well, and this follows a little bit, just for people that don't know, the the Cahiers de Cinema and the people like Francois Truffaut that are writing in Europe. And are you taking kind of a lead from them, like some of these other filmmakers oh, that yeah, I've heard very about? Mu- very much so, yeah. Cassavetes, and they're... Are they, so they're influ- This is what I always find fascinating, is you have kind of, you know, the French school, but then now you have the American interpretation of this. Well, the French, this were, where it begins. the French, you know, were very good at telling Americans what they're good at. Mm-hmm. They, they, they said, jazz is great, and they always said, really, it is? <laughs> <laughs> and... Howard Hawks and Alfred Hitchcock were considered two very successful uh, commercial directors. They weren't mm-hmm. considered artists until the French said they're the best directors in Hollywood. It's, it's, and then they said, yeah, I guess they are. Yeah. It's kind of amazing. I mean, what do you think would have happened if the French had not said that? Because to me, the whole American cinema starts with the French saying... You know, they like Hitchcock and Hawks, and then you get all the, again, the people like you that become well, there were a few all the people. easy riders and raging bulls. And yeah, but a lot of those guys didn't go for Hitchcock and Hawks. A lot of those guys were more influenced by foreign directors like Fellini or, or um, Rossellini or uh, Truffaut mm-hmm. eventually and so on. Um, it's interesting. Um, I think the French had a tremendous impact. Mm-hmm. And Andy Saris, who was a friend of mine, was very instrumental in bringing that idea over here. Yes. Now, and t- tell tell me the name of the book, because, again, when I was in acting school, which was 84, 85, 86, his book was considered... Like oh, the, Andy's book, The, the American Go- Cinema. That was the book you one had to read in yeah, order again. because he broke down all... He gave you a list of all the directors that were... Who, but he left... A very good book. But he didn't he leave out people and then he revised it? A little bit. <laughs> he didn't like Billy Wilder and then he sort of mm. he sort of you know, like, backtracked a little bit on that one. So so you were organizing um uh the retrospective for uh Hitchcock and Wells and, and this is what is so fascinating, then you become also friends with them. I did, yeah. I mean I didn't meet Orson I didn't meet him at the time. On on the Hawks and Hitchcock I actually interviewed them for the monograph. And were you intimidated at all, like meeting them or not particularly. I don't know why I wasn't. I I was certainly very very respectful, but Yeah. I didn't stammer. <laughs> I also had questions prepared. Yes. And what what was some of your did you, did you have rev, uh, revelations that you know with with some of the hawks or they always seem very gruff? You know, sometimes when you interview Ford was gruff, and, and, and you can't and, get and, much out of them. Well, he was crusty, but Hawks was very willing to talk and a good talker. Hitchcock was the best because 
<clears throat> he's like somewhat like a professor. He actually liked to tell you how he did it mm-hmm. and why he did it mm-hmm. a certain way. You could learn a lot from Hitchcock. Did you? Uh, and of course, Hawks said one thing to me that I think of every time I make a picture. Always cut on movement, then nobody will see the cut. Yeah, it's brilliant. Brilliant. But of course, today everybody wants to see the cuts because cut, 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 cut. You know, you can hardly uh, hold the scene for more than a minute. I don't like that at all. This is, uh, you know, we always on the show we recommend books that we're reading, and this again, your book on uh, Orson Welles literally is a bible to me. And and what is so fantastic about it is that it also breaks down shots, which I think is probably staging and and yeah, shots. We talk about that, yeah. It's, that's there's a better the edition. Of, there's a better edition of that that's in print called. Uh, it's the same book, but it's a slightly better edition. It's okay. Called it's the Capo Press. All right, I'll I'll look for that. There's also Who the Devil. Who the Devil Made It and Who the Hell's in It. My two. Uh, uh, they're fantastic. Yeah. I would have brought all of them in. <laughs> I'll put them all on our website so that people can find out where they're. To them. They're literally because people ask me about it. What do I do or how do I get? You know, and I always say you, you read books. You know, if you want to read. Well, the the Who the Devil Made It has sixteen interviews in it. Yeah. Hawks, Hitchcock, Fritz Lang, Otto Preminger, a lot, well, a lot of them. What I like is that some of the problems. That they were facing are the same problems we're always facing. Well, we're all making movies. Yeah, and it's you're in a room, and how do you make it interesting? How do you make it and, interesting? Yeah, you know, or how do you shoot a dinner table scene? Or oh, I, you know, Hitch was very influential in in terms of things he told me. You know, like another great line was, "Never use an establishing shot to establish." <laughs> <laughs> so, and I've kept that in mind. You know. Because it, it, the, the establishing shot is just wasted if it's, if it's just to establish. But if mm-hmm. you use it as a, as a climax sometimes, right. it really may, has an impact. Well, what about traditionally when you're making a film and people always start with uh, basically a 10-minute master that they only use? I mean, this is part of my complaint lately with making movies. We do a 10-minute master and then they send the actors away and they all study... The DP and the director and everything, you know, they study it like it's a math thing. And, okay, we're going to do over and this and oh, that. And they redo it. Yeah, they ba- and they basically don't use any of the master. Oh, I hate that. I know, I know what they use. I but- was doing a picture in Texas, the last picture show, and I had a very complicated scene between Jeff Bridges and Tim Bottoms where they go around a car and they have a fight and so mm-hmm. on. It was like 43 setups mm-hmm. for the whole thing. And I rehearsed it with the actors uh, on a couple of weekends, and I rehearsed it with the cuts. I'd say, okay, I'm going to cut here, so mm-hmm. you'll know I'm going to cut here, and then we pick it up here. Right. So that they knew exactly how I was going to do it. Then I let them play. I let them play it straight through without cutting, so that they get the feeling of what it's. We got to the set and we're shooting it, and the uh, continuity. The guy, the script girl, was a guy, mm-hmm. uh, and the cameraman, who was a very good old-time cameraman, Bob Surtees, they came over to me and they said, well, aren't you going to shoot a master? And I was, this is my second film. I said, what's a master? <laughs> and they said, where, where you see the whole action, the, the whole car and them walking around the car. And so I said, I don't need that. Well, you may need it when you're cutting you to know where they are. I know where they are. <laughs> they were trying to tell me to shoot a master. I said, I'm not going to shoot a master, but I'm never going to use it. Right. But you might need it in cutting. I won't need it. So they wrote, shot under protest. Uh, without a master. It came to uh, 
the producer, Bert Schneider, and he, he looked at it and said and went to Bob Rafelson, who was his partner mm-hmm. and a director. Bob had done yeah. five easy pieces. And he said, I'm worried about this stuff. I don't know if it'll cut. And Bob looked at it and he said, oh, he's cutting in the camera. It'll cut like butter. Mm. Wow. Because I learned to do that from, from the old timers. They all cut in the camera. Right. Ford did that. Never sh- There's a great story about Ford, mm-hmm. uh, which sums up this, this issue. Um, they were shooting How Green Was My Valley, which is a great, yes. great, great movie. And there's Maureen a, O'Hara. The, Maureen O'Hara. And there's a, she marries a man she's not in love with. And the man she is in love with, played by Walter Pigeon, is uh, nearby. And there's a shot where the camera, where they get into the horse and buggy, married, and mm-hmm. they ride off. And it reveals that in the, way in the distance... Walter Pigeon standing under a tree, and you just see him in the distance. So it was a beautiful shot. So um, the cameraman, Artie Miller, comes over to Ford and he says, uh, Jack, do you think we should get a, a shot of Walter under the tree? And Ford says, oh, Jesus, no, they'll just use it. <laughs> <laughs> well, but that takes a lot of confidence. Yeah, well, that's what the job is. You know, something... Um, um, did you ever feel, I feel some, one of the hardest things about women being directors and, you know, I'm, have done shorts and gone into directing is that feeling of intimidation, not of the camera people, but of the camera crew of everybody standing around shaking their head and going, well, she doesn't know what she's doing, but every director has to face that. Yeah. You know, isn't that you walk on, you leave your trailer and you got 50 faces looking at you like, he doesn't know what he's doing. If I were making this film. Yeah, well, that's something that you you just get past that. Mm -hmm. I always, I remember when I was a kid looking at pictures of uh, What's Up Doc, because I was a big Groucho Marx fan. He was my first Mm. movie obsession. Yeah. And uh, so there were, there were pictures on the set of What's Up Doc and everybody was dressed like Groucho Marx. I don't remember it, that. Oh, I do. But it looked like everybody was... Ha- I was like, that's why I want to be in the movie We business. had a lot of fun on that picture. That was a lot of fun. It yes. sure looked like it. it was I, a, I never had so much fun on a picture as that one. That were, it, were things... Everything. everything was... You know, it was like Bruce Springsteen's song, Glory Days. It was like, I had last picture show in the can. Mm-hmm. Everybody said it was a masterpiece already. It hadn't opened. Yes. And, uh, and I was directing Two Hot Stars in a comedy that I that I'd made on a dare. In what way, Adair? Because it was a... John Kelly, the head of Warner Brothers at the time, mm-hmm. calls me in his office. He says, Barbara really wants to make a picture with you. I said, well, I don't like the script you guys sent us. She had seen an early... She'd seen an early... She'd seen the last picture shown, a private screening mm-hmm. of, of, of the work print. And she wanted to work with me. She said, I want to do a drama with you. I said, well, I just did a drama. I, <laughs> <laughs> I want to do a comedy. She said, well, I just did a comedy. I want to do a drama. I said, well... So Callie calls me in his office. He says, uh, Barbara really wants to do a picture with you. I said, well, John, I just don't like that script. He says, well, oh, let me ask you a question. If you had to do a picture with Barbara Streisand, what would you do? I said, well, I guess uh, like a screwball comedy. You know, Daffy Dame, square professor. She screws everything up. Everything turns out all right at the end. Like bringing up baby. He said, do it. I said, really? He said, yeah. Can I produce it? He said, yeah. So I left the office producing wow. and directing Streisand's next picture, and nobody knew what it was. 
And at what point did you bring on uh, Buck Henry to do the script? After two drafts, one by Benton and Newman, who had done Bonnie and Clyde. They did it in three weeks. We, we all did it together. And then I did a polish. Mm-hmm. And then Buck, we, we brought Buck in, and he did the final, the final script. I saw him interviewed once. He said he brought in the device of uh, the suitcase. I think he added a suitcase. Oh, that was what happened. He, we had three suitcases. <laughs> and Sounds I, like a little thing. And I met him at the... At the uh, Musso and Frank's restaurant, and he says, I said, what do you think? He said, well, you're going to hate me. He said, but I think it's not complicated enough. And I said, you think we need another suitcase? He said, yes. So we had four suitcases. It's, it's what makes the, the film. I, to me, one of the beautiful things about the movie is that it is complex. Oh, yeah. You know, there's a lot of uh, things going on. It's sort of a farce. It's well, got, it is a farce, basically. It's a cartoon. Yeah, it's got those elements. But it also has a love story. Oh, sure. Another thing I love about What's Up, Doc, unlike some of the current films today, is that you give everybody their little moment. You know, by the time it gets even to the, I don't know what his name is, but the actor who played the judge. Oh, Liam Dunn. He was a casting man. He wasn't even an actor. It was Buck's idea. He, He was brilliant. On, every person is is really uh, f- it really gets a chance to be funny. It's not just Ryan O'Neill and Barbara Streisand. Yeah, Madeline as a matter of fact, Madeline Kahn was Madeline's first picture, uh, and we did a table read, mm-hmm. and Barbara went into her into every time Madeline said anything, <laughs> the crew, the cast laughed, and, you know, table read. <laughs> Howard and they all broke up. So we go in after the reading. I go into Barbara's dressing room. She's crying. She says, "I'm an extra in this picture, an extra." Oh. I said, "Barbara, you're gonna be. It's gonna be a smash with you. You're gonna be great." And you know, it was the most successful picture of her career, except for *Stars Born*. Wow. Well, she looks beautiful in it. Yes. Gorgeous. It's another thing is that just because it's a comedy doesn't mean it doesn't have to look beautiful. Laszlo, she looks- Laszlo Kovacs lit her beautifully. Mm. Do you know that? I turned down The Godfather because I wasn't interested in the mafia story. And so everybody thought, he turned down The Godfather. He's crazy. But the year of The Godfather was also the year of What's Up, Doc? And the the biggest grossing film of the year was The Godfather. The second biggest grossing picture of the year was The Poseidon Adventure. Mm. The third was What's Up, Doc? Wow. I can't... We made it for very little money, four or six. How did you get on the streets of San Francisco? I mean, again, I cannot imagine it's yeah. the ending, the big chase, chase, and she's riding the hot dog cart, the grocery cart. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's and she it's really not. looks like she's doing her own stunts. Well, she did a couple of them. Yeah, she did. She well, did. See, you fooled me. Two or three. There was one very dangerous one where she didn't do it. She did a long shot coming down the hill. And moving the, you know, so there's these complicated sequences, of course, old sort of Max Senate, people moving yep. glass in, moving out. Oh, yeah, it was a lot of, lot of shtick. But, uh, I mean, but it, you had the streets all to yourself? Well, we had cops, you know, and they were very nice to us. And wh- what was the decision to shoot in San Francisco, anything in particular? I thought it was It's a beautiful if, city. Well, it's also those hills. Yeah. Oh, right, okay. Those hills, you know, where they chase, it's great. Yes, and, they and we didn't undercrank, you know. We didn't we didn't uh, speed it up mechanically in the, in the camera. Mm-hmm. We uh, they, were, they were going eighty miles an hour mm-hmm. for that chase. Wow! They were really going fast. Well, it it believe me, it, looks, <laughs> it looks like there's that real element of danger that the early you know yeah. early comedies had to. And you told me once a story about that Barbara didn't think the ending was very funny when she has to say love means never. Oh. Well, what happened was 
the the last line is let me tell you something love <laughs> means never having to say you're sorry because he says i'm sorry about what happened back there ryan and ryan was in love story yeah. yes he was and she, she says it was buck i i told buck put that line in somewhere and he put it in the end love means never having to say you're sorry and then i told her to do the blink love means never having to say you're sorry yeah and she said with the blink i said yeah why I said, well, I think it kind of kids the line and yes. takes the heat off it, and I just think it shows you that you're kidding. She went to everybody on the set and said, what's funnier? <laughs> love means ever having to say you're sorry? Oh, my gosh. Or love means ever having to say you're sorry? <laughs> Ryan said, I don't know, Barbara. Whatever Peter wants, you know. So she, we, we got the day of shooting. She says, let's shoot it both ways. I said, no. She says, why not? I said, because if we shoot it both ways from now till forever, you're going to say we should have used the other one. Right. right. So we're just going to shoot it with the blink. She says, you're impossible. I said, yeah, I'm possible. Another little moment in the film that I absolutely love just because it's the essence of comedy and you can't explain it is that when she is singing and the seat on the piano breaks at the literally the exact right surprising time. Yeah, and is that something that when you shot it, or did you put sound in afterwards? No, that was live. So wow. that's, and I mean, it's we just pulled the thing out from under them at the end when we wanted to. But I mean, but mathematically, so obviously, when you write the scene, you don't. It's you're like they, she, she's she's going to sing for a time and then she'll fall. But so how do you decide? I'm just it's my own obsession. How do we decide when to do musical? It? Well, uh, it was a. It was. A, it works every. You know, she leans over to. She leans over to kiss him, and he backs away, and then they fall. But it's the it's the perfect. I guess timing is it maybe because we're distracted by her about to kiss him or something. Probably. Um, first of all, we did it live. Barbara sang live. That was mm-hmm. not play. Uh, she wasn't. Dub it. She didn't dub it later. Mm-hmm. And Ryan was supposedly playing the piano. The piano he was playing was a dummy piano. We had somebody off camera playing the piano for uh-huh. him. And I came in, I came in, there was a whole long thing. When we first started the picture, I gave her some line readings. Mm-hmm. She said, you give me line readings? I said, well, <laughs> uh, it's just an idea. You try it. You, know, not, you don't do it exactly that way. It just gives you an idea. Her agent calls me. She says, are you giving Streisand line readings? I said, well, look, it's the it's way I work. They don't have to do it exactly that way. I just, it's an, it's an example. Mm-hmm. So when we did the song, I came on the set and I said, you know that line from the song, on that you can rely? She said, yeah. I said, hit can. Mm-hmm. She said, now you tell me how to sing the goddamn song? <laughs> and if she does it, though, and it's good. But there's a very funny... Um, Commentary track on the DVD where they ask Barbara what what she how she liked working on the picture, and she says, "Well, I'd come in in the morning. He'd tell me what to do, and I'd do it. That was about it." Oh, well, that's a really nice compliment. Well, I liked her a lot. She was fun. Mm-hmm. And was that the first time you'd worked with uh, Ryan with Ryan O'Neill, yeah, and then yeah. you worked with him again on Paper Moon? Yeah. Um, so here's an interesting question, and I want to talk about Last Picture Show, but did you ever think you did the, the Last Picture Show in black and white and then moving to Paper Moon, and then that's going to be like, oh, I'm going to be the black and white guy now that's always shooting? Well, I, we did Doc in, in color, and then Paper Moon came up, and you had Ryan and Tatum 
blonde, blue-eyed, mm-hmm. and I thought they're too pretty to be in uh, in color. Interesting. Plus, it was the Depression. Right. 1935, supposed mm-hmm. to be 35, 36. It wasn't a color era. Mm-hmm. And then I remembered something that I never forgot, something Orson Welles said to me when we were talking about making picture show. And he said, you know, he'd read the script, which he didn't like, by the way, but he, when he saw the movie, he said, you transformed it. That's not the script that I read. I said, yes, mm-hmm. it is. No, it isn't. But anyway, <laughs> uh, he said, you know, I said to him, I'd like to get that depth of field that you had in Cain and in Touch of Evil and so on. You'll never get it in color. I said, mm. well, they have faster film now, you know, Orson. They said, you'll never get it in color. So what do I do? I said, shoot it in black and white. I said, well, I'd like to, but I don't think they'll let me. Have you asked? No. Well, why don't you ask? Mm-hmm. You know what I say about black and white, don't you? I said, what? It's the actor's friend. <laughs> Why do you say that? Because every performance looks better in black and white. <laughs> Name me a great performance in color. And I couldn't. But he's right about that. Particularly in the dramatic picture. It, yeah. It takes the distractions away and you focus on, the, on what the emotions are. Mm-hmm. You don't say, oh, she's got beautiful blue eyes or her hair is great or whatever. Right. You, you focus on the, 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 the drama. Mm-hmm. And it does make performances look better. Oh, it's an, I mean, Last Picture Show is an incredible film, and which holds up. I, they'll obviously, I'm sure they're going to show it at the film festival. They are showing it, yeah. So it'll be great to uh, to see it. Were you surprised at all by? Um, I mean, I was just you know, I I knew her. I came to the movie later after watching Mary Tyler Moore, but uh, by the performance of Cloris Leachman, I don't think anybody knew she was that good. That good. She was, I, she was brilliant. I mean... She came in red for me. Mm-hmm. And um, she, she, she was absolutely not like the character at all, except when she was reading the part. Right. Uh, other than that, she, she was a kook flitting around. She had her daughter with her, <laughs> and she was you know crazy. And then she'd do the scene, and she was great. Yeah. And she also had... I thought she could... Be look plain and attra- and beautiful both because mm-hmm. uh, we had to make her look better. Uh, had to, she had to look better later on as the r- affair progressed mm-hmm. with the boy, and she was just great. And somebody, you know, they always uh, Marilyn Monroe. I don't know if it's a myth, but she'd always say that she'd have that the reason she looked iridescent on camera was she had this little peach fuzz on her face. I don't know if that's true or not. But I, I never heard that. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. But Could but be. but something about Sybil Shepherd in the film has that same. You know, you can't take her your eyes off of her. And in terms of lighting her, and again, like how do you how do you approach doing that in a casual way? Does that make sense? Like you're not nowadays. Again, everything is like close. It, it we're it's. I'm so distracted by knowing that it's the beautiful actress's close up. And that's a movie where the casualness of her beauty takes your breath away, you know? Well, the strange thing about Sybil was she was actually looked better on film than in life. This happens sometimes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people look better on film and some people look not as good on film. Mm-hmm. She looked better on film than in life. Well, she mm-hmm. looked great in life, too. I'm not... <laughs> Putting it down, but I mean, there was something. The camera. She did something happened with the camera with her. Right. 
And at what point are you as the director? I, and I was involved. I, I always gravitate towards the director. Some DPs gravitate. It's so interesting just because I'm a student. I'm like, some actresses always, I'm like, oh, the actress and the DP. Something's going, you know, or, <laughs> but it's the, I'm, you know, as a, as a director, maintaining, you know, you're looking at someone through a frame before you get, and that's how you're getting to know them through a frame of a camera. Yeah, and also directing them. Truffaut wrote a very interesting piece about the dynamic of a director molding a performance with a young woman. It's Mm -hmm. impossible not to fall for them. It was Truffaut's point. Mm -hmm. And uh, it is an occupational hazard, no question about it. Yeah. There's a... I I, I once... uh, I met Joe Mankiewicz, and I said, after talking, I said, yeah, I could see why all the actresses fell (laughs) fell in love with her. Because he kept explaining who I... Like who I was and what I was about, and I was like, "Very nice man." Yo, be in- incredible. But yeah. you know, a director sort of has to get into your head, and you have to be. Vul- I, my theory is, is you know, you have you have to be vulnerable for that person. And so, in terms of a personal relationship, you, it's so condensed so quickly. Meaning, you need to go out with somebody a couple months before you cried in front of them or. Took your clothes. Not, not, not in movies. In movies, it's right. wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. Yeah, but I also think again, there's there's something about watching someone, you know, and that that whole idea of watching someone is, uh, like you said, occupational hazard. It is, and I, I I kept a diary in that period, and I was reading it recently because I'm turning it into a book, mm-hmm. and uh, it's amazing how I just didn't know what was happening to me. Really? I mean, it happened, but I didn't sort of know, understand what to do. And uh, there was no way to stop it. Mm-hmm. You, well, well, because you have a film to make. Yeah, it's just, it was, it's, it's weird. You know? And then once you've captured it on film, I suppose that's a different... Do you find it hard to, to go back and look at your movies, or do you love looking at them? No, I, don't, I won't look at them alone, but if I have an audience, I'll, I'll look at them. Just to explain... No, just <clears throat> I, I can't bear to see them by myself. It bores me. But when I when I when I'm with an audience, then I'm seeing it through their eyes, mm-hmm. and that, that's fun. Another interesting thing about that film is the sound. Of course, there's kind of a haunting, you know, like yeah, it, was, it was like that. It really was. Yeah, in shooting and it was in Texas. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was windy. Is this like Larry McMurtry kind of country in Texas? Larry wrote, Larry wrote the book. And he well, he also wrote HUD, and that has that was also in black and white. That's right. So has but HUD is sort of more is darker, a little bit, you know. Yeah, it's based on another book of Larry's, mm-hmm. and we we shot it in a totally different area because I didn't didn't want to be compared to HUD. Uh, right. And you also have the character of the movie theater. How important was that in yeah, the very, in the movie? That was pretty important. So sad yeah. when the movie closes. Closes, yeah, yeah. And the casting of, uh, was this, I'm trying to think, like, with Jeff Bridges, was this one of his... It was the first party. His first, first part? big part, yeah. And Timothy Bottoms. And Timothy, yeah. Uh, Jeff got nominated for the mm-hmm. first time. on the, He's had a bunch of nominations. and he, he He's nominated for, this year? Yeah, it was his first uh, nomination. He's had, like, a natural ability. Well, interesting thing about Jeff was the character of Dwayne in the, in the, <laughs> in the script is a real shit. Uh-huh. And... Dwayne, and Jeff is one of the nicest guys you ever could meet. <laughs> so I thought if I cast a really nice guy, it'll take some of the heat off of the character. Right. Make him a little bit less 
uh, stereotypical. Mm-hmm. And, so, and Jeff's gen, gen, genuine likability yes. ca- came, came through. You know, I also like the casting of Timothy Bottoms because he's so... Uh, He's such a troubled guy when watching him in movies and uh, his he, he has a career that didn't really ever, you know, get, ho- you know, grab hold. No. But he's so good in The Last Picture Show. Well, he was a little difficult. Well, I mean, he's known to be difficult, but yeah. is it was that his acting process or was it he himself? Uh, he was a little difficult. Though. He's so good with the young, you know, with the with um, the boy, you know, the young boy. Those That was his brother. Oh, it was his brother. Oh. Sam, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So that's why. And Sam got cast uh, by accident. I had some, we cast a ki- an actor from Dallas in the part. Mm-hmm. And the first day of shooting, I was driving through Archer City, going to where this location was. Archer City is a small town. Mm-hmm. And there was a kid sitting on the steps of one of the buildings, and I I said, "Who's that?" And he looks like he looks like Billy, the character. Mm-hmm. And I pulled up to him. And I said, "Who are you?" He said, "I'm Sam Bottoms." I said, "Are you related to Tim?" He says, "Yeah. What are you doing here? I just came to visit Tim." I said, "Really? <laughs> uh, would you like to be in the picture?" And he said, "Yeah. What do I have to do?" I said, well, "Can you take your braces off?" He said, "I have to call my mom." He was 15. Wow. Wow. And I said, "Call your mother. Tell her I want you in the picture." That's how I got the part. He just looked it to me. Yeah. It sounds like the that period of movie making was so organic where artists were really just making movies and nobody was interfering or was there, you know, kind of business concerns. It just seems like such an organic process. Well, I got very lucky because my first film was made for Roger Corman, a picture called Targets. We have to Again, very au courant. Unfortunately, our, it's, our, very, it's very <laughs> au courant, our, yeah. Our current climate. But uh, that was Roger being not just a producer, but also a director. He knew what was what what you have to do, and he he liked the script and was very enthusiastic, very uh, in, encouraging. Um, and then that led to picture show because the producers of BBS, Bert Schneider and Bert, Bob Rafelson and Steve Blauner had produced Easy Rider and Five Easy Pieces, and mm-hmm. they saw targets and they said. We'd like to work with you. And so I had this book that I'd read, and I said, how about this? And the last picture show, and that's how that happened. I'm curious, you know, with a movie like a Targets, which is uh, very dark, I, you know, I noticed they don't play it. You know, they used to play it on television a lot. And I noticed now maybe it's a little bit too close to home. Well, because of the sniper, yeah. Yeah, that they don't, they don't want to give anyone any ideas. Ideas, yeah, yeah. But uh, it's, uh, you know, when when you're doing a film like that, how does it feel that it feels somewhat prescient to have a... Well, it's, it's, it's horrible. Disturbing. It's disturbing that it, that it was so prescient, yeah. And how, how did you like working with Boris Karloff? Oh, he was dear. Hmm. He was a lovely man. He was 80. Yeah, it was, uh, he was just, you know, it must have been nice for him to be... He loved the script, and he, he, he said... You have written the truest line I've ever read in a script. I said, really? What was that? God, what an ugly town this has become. <laughs> that was the line. Anyway, uh, he was, he was, we only had him five days. Oh, really? Yeah, we shot, every, we shot about almost 50% of the script in five days. Wow. That's all we had him for. Well, that's um, something, I'm sure you had to have all your 
shots and everything. Oh yeah, planned out, sure. Completely, completely planned out before. So now that you, so you've done the last, the last picture show, and then uh, what's up, Doc, and then Paper Moon. I mean, three hits in a row. Were you at all nervous at that point, or were you just <laughs> like, "This is my," cr-? I mean. I thought, well, that's fine. That's, uh, I guess that's the way it goes. I, I, I just was, uh, I was overwhelmed. So this is, I mean, this is this is where me as a kid, home in Connecticut, watching television is like. I think you you depict it again for me, like all the reasons I wanted to be in show business. Of like, you go, you're on the Tonight Show. You're at. Di- I hosted the Tonight Show. Uh, yeah, that's. I can't even believe I did that. It was know. the most terrifying thing I've ever been through. Really? Did you monologues? Jesus, it was terrifying. Any thoughts of uh, you didn't, of wanting to continue doing it? Who and no. who were some of your guests? Well, everybody I knew. That was the problem. <laughs> you know, Sybil and Bert, Bert Reynolds and Ryan O'Neill, and I hosted it twice. Well, my mother says, "Do you have to do that?" <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> but it was. I mean, it was a way of plugging the movie or whatever. Oh, I see, I see. But, uh, and so, and at this point, you now you're, so you're living in Los Angeles. And your friends, this is what I always find fascinating. So you're friends with Orson Welles, who already had, stu- you know, was con- pronounced a genius. And now you're being pronounced a genius. Didn't, d- didn't you s- fear any kind of parallels of that? Don't you? Later, it happened. Uh, people said, do you, do you feel that your career is like Orson Welles's and you had this big success and then you had some failures? And I said, no, not at all, because I had three success, very mm-hmm. successful pictures and a couple that were not as successful but didn't die. Mm-hmm. Orson never had a hit. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's the big tragedy in his life, that he never had a commercial smash hit. Mm-hmm. I had several. Mm-hmm. So um, th- there's no comparison really that's good to know the uh well i mean you knew orson all the way towards the you know to the end of. i knew him from 1968 until he died in 85 so it's quite a few years and that was uh i mean was it tough though to watch him i mean they've never found you know when they talk about movies of his that were mangled and uh, well the the last film he made was a film called the other side of the wind Mm -hmm. and Pardon me. One day at lunch, he turned to me and he said, if anything ever happens to me, I want you to promise me you'll finish the picture. Mm-hmm. I said, Orson, why do you say that? Nothing's going to happen. He said, I know nothing's going to happen. But if it does, Aww. I would like you to promise me you'll finish the picture. I said, well, of course. But I, I don't know why you would That's all. We can change the subject now. Mm-hmm. So years went by and... He died in 85. I've been trying to finish it ever since. And what's the issue? That you just funding or that? No, funding is not the issue. It's been a lot of issues. Mm-hmm. But mainly people would jump up and say they own a piece of it or something. Uh, oh, I see. And then somebody else would say they owed money on it. And, <laughs> you, know. you would but think it, that everybody would just band together right. just to bring it out. So. You'd think so. Well, anyway, we're, 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 we're nearing the... You need another retrospective of his. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that that's always the, the tough thing as a filmmaker is that the reason the TCM is so important to me is that, you know, f- films sort of come in and out of fashion. And so the minute you stop talking about them, you know, for years, 
I, I remember like Greta Garbo had sort of gone out of fashion, and then and then people, you know, sometimes things movies, come back. Yeah, yeah, movie people come back. I always have this thing I, I talk about where people don't know who Spencer Tracy is. I know. <laughs> and it's and you or Lubitsch, for example. Right. Lubitsch was the most famous director in the world between 1925 and 1955. Mm-hmm. Uh, he died in 48, I think. So he was the Lubitsch touch was right was as famous as Hitchcock's master of suspense. What uh, you know, they called Hitchcock the master of suspense. When I grew up, uh, they, people were touting Frank Capra a lot, and some of his movies don't hold up as much as uh, you know. But that was one. That was the well, Capra was a was a major director, and he he, he, he I think he was one of the first to have his name above the title. Yes, mm-hmm. as his as he called his book as yeah. he called his book. Um, and I saw a early, uh, a Dick Cavett, which was surreal. I mean, this is the Dick Cavett, the panel, you, Robert Altman, uh, Mel Brooks, <laughs> Mel Brooks and oh, Frank Capra. That's right. That's wow. all. And I, I remembered it. I remembered it as being that I hadn't said a thing and, and Dick Cavett ran into him somewhere and he said, I'm going to send you this show you did. I said, I didn't say much. That. Yes, you did. And I looked at it, and I was jabbering all the way through it. But that's good. That's what was... I even took over Ka- Cabot's. I started interviewing Capra. I, that's what I loved about it. <laughs> it, was, it was needed. But on the show, Frank Capra says that he was the very first person to make the leading man also a comic actor, in a sense, creating the romantic lead in, in Happen One Night. He said it on that show. Well, he's and, not, you know, he's not completely wrong. Yeah. It Happened One Night was the first kind of screwball comedy. Right. Um, but the same year, 1934, uh, Hawks made a picture with John Barrymore and Carol Lombard called 20th Century. Yeah, the greatest. Which is divine. Mm-hmm. And uh, was not as big a hit as It Happened One Night, but mm-hmm. it, was, it, it sort of started that whole thing. But, you know, that kind of making the leading characters also the comic characters. Right. That really started with Noel Coward's Private Lives in 1929 on the, st- on the stage. Mm-hmm. Because that was the first time that I can, I think in, in show business history, that the, that the, the, the leads were the, also the, did the slapstick. Mm-hmm. Well, that was a good, uh, it's, a, it's a really interesting uh, show it's on YouTube if you can get a chance to see it. So then some of your other films after that start to fall into problems with distribution. Yeah, that was a problem on a number of pictures. Yeah. And how does how does something like that even happen? Well, um, it happened to me a couple of times because the executive in charge didn't like me. And, it's and it's sort as simple as... And, and, he, and, he, and he really f- sabotaged the opening of the film. Really? Oh, yeah. That happened to me on at least three pictures. Well, Nickelodeon is a great example of a film that you got a second chance to to all, to change the color on. Well, that was because it should have been in black and white from the beginning. It's a it's black and white era, silent era. It's not a mm-hmm. color era. And you see the picture, and it looks like it was made in 1975. It was 76 right. when, it, when it was made. It's supposed to be 1915. Mm-hmm. And I argued with the head of the studio and he used to be my agent and he was a jerk <laughs> and um, he said no it's too expensive a picture to do in black and white it was a stupid and stupid remark mm-hmm. 
but we did it in in color. And I I said to Laszlo Kovacs, the cameraman, I said, one day we're going to print this in black and white. So light it for black and white, mm-hmm. wow. which he did. So when we when it was finally printed in in uh, in black and white, everybody mm-hmm. said, "Wow, it looks so good in black and white." I said, "Yeah, because we lit for it." Right. It did. It, did. it looked beautiful. And yeah. the commentary. Yeah. So I love your commentaries on all films. If you ever want to uh, learn, I love the one on, uh, I've actually recommended it, uh, Clash by Night, which is one of my favorite. Did I do that? Yes, you did. Uh, we talk about, it's, a, it's, you know, the you talk a lot about Fritz Lang, his use of coming from, uh, he, everything we learned about films. I could just listen to your commentary because you talked about his you say, and you're just doing a stream of consciousness. You Not just so, come in. What happens is I never prepare for those things. They, sh- I come in and they show me the film, and I start talking, and I just, uh, I just keep talking. As my mother-in-law used to say, he can just keep talking. <laughs> are, are you a fun? And when you're home, you know, watching a movie with friends and relatives. I, I mean, I feel like I'd like to have you on speed dial, just being like. Peter, I saw five minutes of something. I don't, and then you could, you know, tell me about it or the director or, uh, you know, some of the. I, I'm getting, you know, I find I discover directors. So now I'm into like Richard Quine. I'm looking at Richard Quine. I'm always fascinated by people that have a dark personal history. So his movie. Yeah, like, well, it was I, I, this movie that he did called Strangers When We Meet with yeah. Kim Novak. So he's dating Kim Novak, and then he's making a movie with her, and in the movie, they're building a house, and his plan was that at the end of the film, they were going to move into the house together, and she left him by the end of the movie. Oh, but the sad. movie is... I know, but the, to me... Is, uh, that the, is that the picture that has the song, um, Strangers in the Night? You know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that. Dooby-dooby-doo? It might. It's a Kirk Douglas movie. Yeah. Um... But anyway, it's an interesting film. So when you're, if you're recommending films to to people, you know, where, where do you begin? Where do you start? Well, uh, usually with Hawks and Hitchcock and Ford. And you say, are you a purist? Do you say start at the beginning? And Not necessarily, no. Something that's accessible? Accessible is the main thing. It still mm-hmm. works. Mm-hmm. There are some pictures that work better than others. Uh, you know, Hawks actually, generally speaking, works more uh, surefire than Ford because he was more modern. Mm-hmm. He had a more modern sensibility and he wasn't as emotional. Ford is emotional and sometimes it gets sentimental, but it's always so powerful that mm-hmm. it's, 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 it's not mawkish. Right. Um, but Ford is so much in the American grain. He's, he's a masterpiece. Well, a movie like The Searchers, of course, has, Great has film. come to the forefront. Is I mean, I think people now sort of consider it... Um, a masterpiece, movie. yeah. He made a bunch of them. It's interesting that every a lot of movies are like, oh, there's the shot from Searchers. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen, do you find that as a director yourself hard? You're like, I'm doing something that I've seen. Um, no, <laughs> because I sometimes do it on purpose. Uh-huh. Um, you see a shot and it reverberates and you say, oh, I'd like to do something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it's you know, I've seen so many movies that... Uh, they all sort of meld together. Right. 
But, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a technique to making movies. There's a vocabulary, there's a grammar. Mm-hmm. And Hitchcock was particularly good at, at, at exemplifying that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, he was very good at point of view shots. In other words, putting the audience in the, in the, from the point of view of the character. Mm-hmm. Sort of putting the audience into the, the, the actor's shoes, you know. He's very good at that, and it's a it's a it's very f- effective. Do you have favorite comedy directors? Well, Hawks, mm-hmm. Buster Keaton. Are you a Charlie Chaplin fan at all? Not as and much. I, not as much as Keaton. I think Keaton's uh-huh. funnier because he took more risks with the comedy. Sometimes Chaplin, for me, can get a little precious. Well, yeah, and also sentimental. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of Victorian sentiment. I don't mind. I don't have a. I don't dislike him. I just mm-hmm. think Keaton's funnier, and he was a better director. Mm-hmm. In terms of his... Uh, camera placement, and uh, the, 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 his comedies are really funny, still hilariously funny, like Steamboat Bill Jr. You, 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 there's no funnier movie than that. Right. How do you feel about uh, W.C. Fields? He's somebody that, again, when I was growing up, was very big, Yeah. and now... Uh, Nobody's heard of him. No, and I'm well, a, I, I like him. I think he's funny. Um, I like some of the shorts he made; were pretty outrageous. Uh huh. Um, he was very. I think he's very funny. I feel there was a great use of the the body with people like W. C. Fields, Bob Hope, Jimmy Cag. I'm a huge Jimmy Cagney fan. Oh, Cagney's amazing. You know, they just they knew how to use their whole body for yeah. acting. And again, um, um, some of the current movies, that I'm like everything gets real tight. And it's all they all use close-ups too much. Yeah. And why do you think that is? Because we're looking at. I don't know. It came <laughs> from M- MTV or something. I'm not. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's some of the older films. You, you know. They were careful about close-ups. Mm-hmm. By that I mean they didn't use them in, indiscriminately. Mm-hmm. A picture like um, Air Force, for example, Howard Hawks picture from 1943 or something. There's no close-up in it to for, for 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. But when he does go to the close-ups, it's really powerful. Right. You know. Is there that sense that once you go in close, you can't come back out again? I don't think that's true, but but that that is sort of the common wisdom. Well, because it starts to feel, I start to feel a little claustrophobic when everything is very close. I'll give you an example of a movie that I I I really like the movie quite a lot, but um, oh god, it just went out of my head. The one uh, Rob Reiner film, uh, Tom Cruise, Jack Nicholson. You know, you can't handle the truth. Uh, a few good men. A few good men, which I saw as a play. Yeah, I saw the play too. And then the I saw the movie, and everything was like big head. Was Jack Nicholson's, you know? And I what the old studio, what the old crew used to call big head of Pola. <laughs> you know that of Pola? Orson, yeah, Orson used that on me. So he said, "We're going to do a big head of Pola." I said, "What?" <laughs> he said, "That's what they used to call close-ups." I said, "Where'd that come from?" Lubitsch brought Pola Negri over, and he said, "I want big head of Pola." Oh, God. And then that's a close-up. So the crew said Big Head of Polar became the, the, the synonym for close-up, like MOS. Yes. But nobody uses that anymore. <laughs> no. I, lo- I think the, we should bring it back. The, uh, yeah. 
big head of Paul. So you also have uh, worked extensively as an actor. We did a we did a couple scenes together. Yeah, and that it was a mini series many years ago called Bella Mafia. Jennifer Tilly and Dennis. Uh, God, Farina, a lot of... Uh, wasn't Vin- that Nastasha Kinski, too? Yeah, Nastasha Kinski, all my childhood favorites. Yeah, it was fun. Oh, my goodness. It was a lot. Vanessa Redgrave. Yeah, she was great. She was fantastic. It was, it was silly, but we had a lot of fun doing it. And, um, of course, The Sopranos. That was amazing. Brilliant casting. How did they come to you for The Sopranos? That was so funny. I, when you showed up. I laughed. It was could not have been more surprising and perfect. Well, what happened was about <laughs> 1992 or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the year that this book came out, mm-hmm. this Orson Welles book. And I get a call from a fellow named David Chase. Mm-hmm. He says, we're in Seattle shooting a series called Northern Exposure. And we want to do an, an, a, a, a segment, an episode sort of tribute to Orson Welles up here in, in northern where mm-hmm. they're supposed to be. He said, we'd like you to come to Seattle where we're shooting and play yourself in, uh, in a tribute to Orson. I said, okay, sure. So I went up and did it. <clears throat> After a day of shooting, they saw the dailies and David Chase calls me up. He says, have you ever acted before? I said, yeah. I started out as an actor. <laughs> He said, well, you, you should do more of it. You've got a, a, a lot of presence. I said, oh, thank you, thank you. Seven years later, he calls me again and says, we're doing a second season of a series called The Sopranos. I said, yeah, I, I heard about it. He says, and, and the psychiatrist, the therapist, is having so much trouble with Tony Soprano that she needs a therapist. Would you be interested <laughs> in playing it? I said, yeah. He said, well, come down and meet the writers. So I met the writers, and they, we talked about 45 minutes, and they said, fine, let's do it. I, I I loved doing it. It was oh, so much fun. It was fantastic. And then, so going back from from acting then to directing, I mean, was there anything that you learned by that experience? Well, you know, I always, for me, directing was pretty much an a, an extension of acting. Mm-hmm. Because in order to stage a scene, for example, I would generally walk it through myself mm-hmm. to see how I would do it. Right to see what to tell the actors. I, I didn't just stand back and say, you go over there. And I would walk the scene mm-hmm. with business or whatever it was involved. So I would direct by acting mm-hmm. and figuring out how, I, how, how I would play it. So it would be also how I would stage it. Mm-hmm. So I, I, it's, acting has always been in the back of my mind, and I've all, 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 I, I work very closely with the actors on the pictures. Mm-hmm. I'm very calm. Pretty calm, yeah. Oh my God! I, I, I mean, as I said, I had a very brief experience working with you, but I, I just thought, you know, again, you just, you're so knowledgeable that, you know, <laughs> where you, you, one gets the feeling where, you know, we're in good hands. Well, that's important. Do I, I, I'm assuming I once saw you uh, having a not very nice conversation with David O. Russell. I have a feeling that there's a lot of directors. I bet Noah Baumbach. You mentioned uh, Noah and I. Wes, yeah, uh, uh, that, that the, you must be their, uh, you know, their their consigliori from God. Well, you know. both both Wes and and Noah call me Pop. Aww. Oh, that's And I great. call them my sons. Aww. they're very sweet. 
Well, you're so, I mean, you're so knowledgeable and yet you're, you're so humble. Like, can we, can we clone you so that you can just be? Well, you know, I've seen some great directors and I've seen some great movies and I'm just privileged to be able to make movies. You know, Orson used to say that. He said he, he always thought it was a, a privilege to make a movie. Mm-hmm. I think that's true. Well, the the uh, are there any movies that you're sort of working on now? Or you said you're going around the country and I, I did some gigs. Yeah, no, I'm working on a movie. I've been working on this particular one for the script for about thirty years. I'm not even exaggerating. It's just, wow. It, it, it kind of grew and grew like topsy and mm-hmm. kept changing. And I think I've got it nailed now. Mm-hmm. It's called Wait for Me, and uh, it's a comedy drama fantasy because there's ghosts in wow. it mm-hmm. and uh, I've never done that kind of thing before I love ghost movies yeah oh, the ghost that? of Mrs. Muir and the ghost goes west did you ever see that the ghost goes west no who's in the ghost goes west Robert Donut remember Robert Donut yes he yeah. was a wonderful English act 39 yeah. steps right exactly yeah. yeah the ghost goes west it's a very good movie I saw it recently again. It, you know, it was an international production. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it was produced by Alexander Korda, who was Hungarian. Mm-hmm. It was directed, it was written by an American, Robert E. Sherwood. Mm-hmm. It was du- directed by a Frenchman, René Clair, and starred an Englishman. Mm. I, I, when I was 10, I loved that film. I just, uh, saw it recently, it's still good. Oh, well, I'm going to, will, I will check that one out. Yeah, The Ghost Goes West. It's very charming. Um, Peter, it's so tough to say. So long to you. Hopefully we'll... uh, I I have one final question for you. Just because it's so, again, for, you know, you've done so many profiles of the great directors where they're... And, you know, when we do the show, The Trailblazing Women on TCM, we always struggle to find great female directors. You know, Elaine May or... Dorothy Arz. Elaine was good. Ida Lupino. I mean, is, is Ida Lupino sort of... Was she potentially could have been our great... American director, maybe, uh, you know... She was a good director. She was a better actress. Than a... than a. And what do you think it is about the, the, the female directors? They just couldn't get a foothold in the studio system. Yeah, they couldn't. Is that all it was, or...? Pretty much, yeah. What did, I mean, and you were friends with the Hawks and, you know, Wells. Did they have any kind of... I guess you just didn't even think of women as being... Directors in those days. Well, you know, there there was some some pretty powerful directors in the in the silent era that were women directors. Yes, mm. um, I can't remember her name now. Isn't it There's uh, Marion. Uh, well, we profiled a bunch of them, but yes, there were some a uh, lot of the silent um, silent film directors and writers. A lot of female writers. Yeah, a lot of them. Where do you fall on uh, Joan Harrison, who helped Hitchcock quite a she bit? She was a she was a very good producer and very good with stories, I think. <clears throat> Hitchcock counted on her a lot. Yeah. So in terms of writing and construction, I feel like there's a lot. But in terms of the physicalness of the directing, I don't know. My own theory is it always has to do somewhat with the crew, but that's just my own personal feeling. Uh, it's, you know, you have to, in order to be a director, you have to kind of lead an army. And I, I still don't know if women feel... 100% confident in doing that. They probably don't. That's just my, you know. They should, but they probably don't. Um, it's it's difficult. It's like going into a deli and suddenly, like, order, you know what I mean? Like, 
I always, I mean, I get into, you know, when you're in Zay bars, I get very intimidated. Like, I, you know, there's, I'm like, I, I, I said, hopefully they'll call on the nice, quiet girl in the back, you know, and you're never going to get anything that way. Yeah. But, you know, crews are, you got to handle They're them. They're mostly guys. That's the problem. Yes. Um, Ileana, I don't think yes. we've asked the one question. Oh, which is, well, we always, we usually start the, with uh, asking you, the, do you remember, which it may be good, the ghost, ghost Goes West, but the, do you remember the first movie that you saw, the very yeah, first? I do. And who took you to it? My parents, I was three. Wow. Dumbo. Oh. <laughs> and I was taken out of the theater screaming. Oh. Didn't like it at all. Three might have been a little young for Dumbo. And I had to be taken out. And I, I've often thought that maybe it was some infantile or infantine um, precognition of how difficult movie making <laughs> oh. turned well, out to be. I feel that there is, as we are, I always ask people about it, because there's something about, usually it's traumatic. I mean, usually people's first movie going experience as a child is something terrifying or something that they saw that they weren't supposed to see. In my case, Dramatic was, in some I way. saw the movie Romeo and Juliet with my uh, grandfather. Which one? At a drive-in, the, the Franco Zeffirelli. Oh, yeah. So I was very young, and again, I saw nudity. It was very touching. It was, I was, it was like, it, it was, I was devastated. I was like, <laughs> it was like, I saw nudity and romance, and then she died, and I was... Uh, traumatized by the yeah, it's a terrible story yeah. by the experience I just was you know well I, I evidently was tra- traumatized by Dumbo but <laughs> I got over it <laughs> have you have you seen it since no see oh yeah I must have oh. seen it I must have seen it be afraid uh, yeah, be very afraid yeah to see Dumbo uh, <laughs> Well, Peter, it's it's uh, it's such an honor. And how are you on Twitter and all of that sort of thing? Can people get a hold of you? No, um, uh, some fans put up a couple of pages on Twitter and yes. and, and on Facebook, but I, I don't do it. Well, I highly recommend. Just have to hope to run into you on the street, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Come I had it. a blog for a while, which was called Blog Donovich. Oh, I like that. <laughs> writing about films. Yeah, yeah, that was on uh, IndieWire, but. I'm, I'm not doing that. Do you really. know what I went to see a couple of years ago? The very famous screening you did at Fox of At Long Last Love. Oh yeah, that was interesting. Gosh, that was fun. That was oh, what a privilege to get to see it on the big screen. Well, what a privilege to get it cut right. You know that story. The, the head of the Fox editorial department made the best cut, which without even telling me. I saw the first time I ever saw the movie was on television. That's how I saw and it. That was the good cut. And I, mean, I didn't know, but I loved it. I was like, well, I think it's great, you know. Yeah, but people said, why did it get such bad reviews? It, it, it's, it's so charming. They'd seen. I said, where'd you see it on TV? I said, well, that's not the version that was released. Mm. But I thought they were referring to a version that I'd cut. It turns out they were referring to Jimmy Blakely's cut, which was superb. Fascinating. Well, and does that is that movie available on Blu-ray? Yeah. Oh, fantastic! I highly re- another film of yours. I highly it cats meow. That's on. That's on Blu-ray. It is a wonderful uh, film that has a, a course, sort of a tie to Wells. Right, it was a story he told you about. The uh, he told me the story about it originally, way back when, and I we couldn't. And then uh, years later. Mm-hmm. Many years later, I get a script and I said, "This is that story. Mm-hmm. Maybe I should make it." Yeah, which is about the—it's a little it's bit a of a murder mystery. Murder mystery because uh, Thomas Ince um, died on the was shot, as it turns out, on the yacht. 
Yes. Didn't his wife receive, I, I mean, the story I always heard is then the wife received some sort of mansion and... Uh, there was something like that. Yeah, I don't know the details of that. I, I love Hollywood. Uh, I love Hollywood stories like that. Anyway, I could go on and on, yes. and we must leave. Uh, it's been such a privilege. Please come back. Thank you. Thank my, you so my, much. My pleasure. Anytime. Please publish that book too. I, that 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 with all of the cards. Well, yes. I'm I'm doing a, a diary book now, which is that diary I told you about, mm-hmm. and I'm quoting from the card file. Well, Fantastic. I could see the card file as being one of those great Tashin books. Yeah, that's yes. what that's, that's what uh, Wes Anderson wanted to do. Yeah, well, see me and Wes. There you go. My new book is called "But What I Really Want to Do Is Direct." <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and the subtitle is "My First Picture Shows, 1965 to 71: uh, An wow. Intimate Journal." Wonderful. Oh, 65 is a good year. Well, I was born in 65, but I, 60, that's a good year. 65 is a good year for films. Yeah. I yeah. Think. Has an interesting. It was a good year for me. I got to work with Roger Corman on The Wild Angels. Wow. That's a, so many great stories. Well, I look forward to that. Peter, thank you very much. As thank we you. always say, uh, our movie has a, every movie has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And this is sadly the end of this show. It well, is. I'll be happy to come back. Anytime. Please. Wonderful. We'll thank you, back. Peter, so much. Thank you. Uh, check out our website, ilianaspodcast.com. I have links for many of the things that were talked about today. You can also find Ileana's book, I Blame Dennis Hopper, on Amazon. It's out in paperback and in bookstores. Find our Facebook page. Look for us on Twitter. Thank you very much. See you next time, Thank everybody. Thank you. Thank you, so Peter. Long. From producers Maria Menunos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners or principals.